Welcome everyone to TransUnion's Extra Credit Podcast, where we seek to provide insights, not push products to our consumer financial service provider customers and interested other parties. So before we wrap the year with our year-end reflections and thoughts on next year, we're excited to have one more great guest on. We are excited, Craig. Today, we've got Mike Leary joining us. Mike is currently the Chief Risk Officer of SMBC Manubank and comes with years of experience from leading risk management roles at super regional and national banks, as well as experience at multiple examiners at the federal level. So Mike, welcome to the podcast and thanks for providing us your insights today. Thanks for having me. It's great being here. Before we um, you know, ask you some questions about the current state of the market and things to consider looking forward, we'd like to take a look back uh, at your really extensive experience in developing expertise in financial services and, and, and risk in general. You know, if you look back at your roles uh, at issuers or with the Federal Reserve, you know, there are a couple of key uh, formative experiences that that you really value? Oh, absolutely. I think that anytime you're in a period of of transition, those are usually the cases where they stress you the most, they cause you to reach further than you've reached before, and that process of reaching out and trying to grab something that you can't see is usually the the place where you learn the most and, like you say, become the formative parts of your character. I think when I graduated from college, I graduated into uh, a mini recession and uh, the mid-Atlantic states were going through a commercial real estate in, in uh, really a crisis. And what's interesting now is I'm looking 30 years later and I'm seeing many of the same causes and effects that I learned as a kid coming right out of college and experiencing it on the ground floor. Now I'm the guy in the C-suite dealing with these questions. And I'm really excited to have learned from others' mistakes 30 years prior in similar issues with commercial real estate, with things like, you know, overbuilding and building in the wrong areas and you know, really getting too aggressive with some of the pro formas that were inside things like appraisals and the and the pro formas used to justify transactions. Um, that led me into the you know my time at the Federal Reserve and the Fed. Learned a lot in those formative years about you know the the five P's of credit, the five C's of credit. Uh, you know where where really you know you you make your muscle uh, strong and and how you evaluate customers' ability and willingness to repay. You know, that's that's really a key formative area for me in the past, just getting the, the basics, the foundation built. But then I think, you know, I look at the fact that I've participated in several mergers, those mergers when effectively the the team is looking for leadership, the team is looking for someone who will reach their hand into an empty cave and say what's inside uh, and learning what it's like to walk into a dark, empty cave in a merger. <laughs> And not knowing what's going to happen, and and uh, being the guy saying, okay, let's go look, let's see what's on the other side of this, and then working as a team together to learn that one plus one truly can equal three, and that you can uh, see more by working as a team and by taking your individual strengths and others' strengths together and 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 blending them into something more than you would have ever 
even thought of on your own. So I think those two things, I think there's a lot of things that happen earlier in your career that give you those foundational elements you use later. But then the second thing is I truly appreciate the mergers I've been through because it allows you to look at different perspectives and different challenges than you would typically get in a day-to-day. And then you draw on their strengths later in your career. So I think those are the the two times really. Wow, that's a great pers- perspective, Like, Thanks. Um, one thing I seem to remember, I believe it, while you were in college or university, you were a competitive athlete. You know, how has that helped you in, in your career? It's interesting you you bring that up. I, I ran cross country in college and I would say I was less competitive than some of the better runners on our team. But maybe that was the thing that the perseverance of going to meet after meet and knowing I wasn't going to win, but knowing that I just wanted to help the team place that, you know, my not being at the end of the pack was something that helped the team win because it was a combined team effort of all of our places being added together. Um, I, I think that the training, the teamwork, the perseverance, uh, the looking for an end goal to knowing that the team wanted a team and not having to you know, without ever wanting to let the team down, I think you bring that to work every day where, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, is a commercial borrower the right decision? Yes or no. A lot of money's on the table. Uh, is a is a credit score ready to be installed? Is it strong enough? Does it have uh, the type of robustness and 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 the ability to stand up to regulatory and, and market sh- uh, stresses? Um, you know, what, what do you learn as an athlete? you learn that not everything's easy. Most things aren't. And those things that are hard are usually the things you benefit most from. Wow. Great answer. I'm going to break the wall. Mike, we, we, we hit you with that unprepared and that was a a great answer. Uh, Again, Mike, uh, I really appreciate your perspective, you know, looking back and and looking forward. Speaking of looking forward, let's dive into um, some questions on market perspective. I'm sure all the folks listening are really interested in your opinions and perspective. So many of our listeners are focused on card or other consumer lending portfolios, manage acquiring them, manage them, et cetera. In this current market, what are some less obvious risks that you're paying attention to that may impact those lending books? Great question. Uh, it's interesting when we were, Going into COVID, I remember deep conversations we had about was there going to be a cataclysmic event that occurred? Was everyone going to go bad on their loans? Uh, Were we going to see just truly extraordinarily horrible credit materialize very quickly? And what we found was the exact opposite occurred. So your question about what are the things that are less obvious I think it's a great question because you truly have to look at a spectrum of risks and be prepared for as many of them as possible. Because uh, if anyone could predict the future, uh, then they'd be, you know, they'd own the world. And so I can't predict the future. Uh, My business can't predict the future. But what we can do is spend a lot of time thinking about what are those things we understand greatly and what are those things we understand less and then looking at those things we understand to a lesser degree and then try and focus on those so that we can be 
more right than we were at the beginning of COVID, thinking that you know the credit was going to be a cataclysmic failure. And so, a couple examples of things that we understand, I think, less than we'd like to, so they become those things we worry about a little more. Uh, the advent of buy now, pay later, it took off like a rocket uh, in sort of the 2019, 20, 21, 22 timeframe seems to be abating a little bit as far as a product that was going to take over the world, but hasn't. But yet I still worry, you know, who are my customers that have uh, BNPL loans that I can't see, that they are making sort of micro payments on micro loans. And then when they come to me and say, hey, I'm kind of new to credit or hey, I've had some dirty credit, but I'd, I'd like to get a, a credit card or a personal loan. Um, yeah, I can't see their whole perspective because these things are currently hidden from the market to a large degree. And, you know, how much can I trust what they're telling me from a debt perspective when I can't see everything? Um, another one is credit score inflation. Uh, credit scores are up around 13 points from the beginning of COVID at the end of 2019 to right now. The peak was a 15 point differential. And with odds to scores ratios doubling every 20 points or so, you know, a 13 point difference is a very material difference in what a credit score means. So when we're making decisions, uh, looking at things on a vintage chart, looking at decisions in our decision matrices based upon archive data, you end up with these, these, these uh, asynchronous relationships where if you went back in time, Usually, outside the, the 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 major recession we had in, in say 08, um, you can usually look at the performance of past archives and use it as a relatively decent proxy. And now I think we're looking at it as well. It might be a relatively decent proxy, or it might not, because we're looking at a lot of very unusual relationships. So the score inflation plus unusual relationships with things like unemployment causes us to again look at this and say, wow. Um, you know, there's things in here we don't quite understand. Uh, cost of housing is the least affordable it's been since 1986. That means people don't have as much money to pay for credit cards, personal loans, auto loans, HELOC payments, et cetera. And, and we see that because the savings rate has absolutely plummeted. Um, we're back to now the lowest rate since 2005, and we're in the mid threes. Well, if you look back over the previous decade, you're probably in the eight to 10% range and now we're in the threes. So you add all that together and you get to a perspective of, wow, there's a lot we really don't understand. That is, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. There are a lot of good insights. Um, you know, given that um, and other uncertainty that whether it's geopolitical or, or whatnot, how would you pos be positioning a card portfolio now over the, the next year? Did you think about slow growth? Is it defensive? Are there hidden opportunities? Is it a grab bag of all of them? It in some ways depends on the, the level of risk appetite you have and where you're coming from. So the, the portfolios that have a very large ballast of extremely high quality customers that are likely to continue to spend and keep keep payments flowing, keep delinquency rates relatively low, keep charge-offs relatively low, they're probably in an advantageous position that they can take a little more risk and stay on the curve and continue to acquire customers knowing that the, the ballast they have is going to keep them from toppling over. 
the the newer lenders and the ones that have been playing in the middle of the spectrum are probably a little more at risk as to what they do next because they don't have that strength, that foundation that allows them to have a place to fall back onto and know that they're not going to topple over. So I, it really depends on uh, the current portfolio mix. And uh, and again, I'll go back to the the uncertainties. I think everyone is probably being somewhat cautious in this market because credit scores again are inflated and there's uh when you when you run into the case where your your modelers are telling you you know many of our inputs that we would normally rely on are just not in their normal place housing super expensive interest payments are through the roof they're up over 50 percent from where they were three years ago for personal interest payments um there's just a lot of very i'll call it wacky inputs that when you are in a place of say instability which is where i think we are now uh, it's best to be a little towards the cautious side from where you would traditionally be on your risk appetite thanks mike and i i love that season ballast concept i, I haven't heard that analogy before i love that yep so mike thinking about the the marketing side of things and the acquisition engine Given some of those points uh, for which you said people are being a little more cautious for lenders that have that more seasoned, kind of prime and above portfolio, how do you suspect they're thinking about marketing going into 2024? So I think an interesting thing I've seen in marketing is that the the big guys continue to stay in the market, maybe just not as big as they have been, maybe not as aggressive. I've been waiting to see the longer low rate BT offers in the credit card environment, maybe get a little more aggressive at some point so that they could, again, build that ballast I was speaking about earlier and make sure that you've got a really strong denominator uh, that maybe doesn't cause as much of an interest cash flow problem for those borrowers and maybe ride your way through this recession. I think I would actually expect to maybe see a little more of that. Uh, so I, I do expect that we're going to maybe see that at some point in the future. But what's also interesting is I've seen some relatively creative, non-traditional approaches uh, from some of the larger banks where they're closing branches in some areas where they're less profitable, but we've seen them opening branches in areas that are highly affluent where they can sell multiple products and say, use the credit card product as a transactional product that brings the customer into the door, that gets them into the web and gets them into the mobile app and keeps them engaged, but then gives the opportunity to sell things like wealth management and trust services, you know, and, you know, larger mortgages where they can, they can make that fee income. So uh, again, it may not just be about the credit card itself with some issuers. It may be about what that credit card means to bringing an overall relationship in where the 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 value of the relationship is greater than just the value of that credit card. Mike, you mentioned a number of measures that you're keeping your eye on, unemployment, housing costs, yield curves, a, a number of things. For some of the issuers out there who may have more of an abiding caution than others, how do you think they will look at those measures or what will they see that will allow them to feel good about you kind know, of cranking up the acquisition engine again? So I'm looking at three things. I'm looking at unemployment, I'm looking at job creation, uh, and I'm looking at the stability of credit scores. So that allows me to look from the outside, those two things that typically cause stress to a consumer and a business. And on the inside, then looking at what my primary tool is 
to see whether or not my primary tool is working in the way in which I would expect it to work. Um, we just finished our last risk committee last week. Uh, we look at hundreds of metrics, both internally and externally across the full risk taxonomy. We look at several dozen of those from the, uh, the economic perspectives of where we've got concentrations of credit uh, geographically, as well as we look at national numbers. We look at both consumer and commercial metrics. Um, you know, one of the metrics I don't think is getting maybe enough attention is bankruptcies. It's been at a very low level for many years, but in some of the recent numbers I've seen, it's starting to creep up. You're starting to see uh, bankruptcies creep up. You're seeing foreclosures actually increase quite rapidly. And, um, and so we're not only seeing those foreclosures and in residential properties, but we're also seeing them in commercial properties as well. Those things don't go on for an extended period of time without having a trickle down to the ultimate consumer who is a uh, who is either paying more through inflation for the goods and services of those companies or is employed by those companies. And so you have to continue to look at sort of both sides, the push and the pull, the supply and demand as to what's uh, what's really going to going to impact it. So from a metric standpoint, we look both externally and internally, both at what's influencing our customers and our borrowers, uh, the consumer and the commercial side. But then also, what are our tools doing? How strong are they? And are they performing where we expect them to? Great. No, thank you. So, hey, Josh, can I interject there? Mike, you mentioned one of your three was, I think you said the third one was credit stability. How do you measure or judge that? So what we'll look, do is we'll look at whether or not the credit scores we've built uh, and the strategies we've predict used to predict the outcomes of decisions are in fact laying where they're supposed to. Is our is our capital adjusted profit where we expect it's going to be? Our net interest margin where it's expected to be? Our our loss rates in certain vintages by credit scores where they're supposed to be? We'll look at the you know really the population stability index of any of our tools like a credit score as to you know, are we seeing that customers are coming in with the same characteristics, the same mix of dynamics as they used to, or are we starting to see, say, an inching up on things like utilization or balances or delinquencies uh, or some of those binary things like like foreclosures? And, and you know, it, so when you start to see a mix shift, then you have to wonder what's going on. The greatest example I can give of that is what we referred to in the financial crisis as jingle mail. Uh, I remember working at the time in the same building where uh, I was working primarily on consumer credit that was unsecured, but there were other people working in the building that were doing the residential foreclosures, and they would literally get keys put in an envelope and sent back to them. And uh, it was it was unheard of until 2008 that people would continue to pay their auto loans and their credit cards but not pay their mortgages. And that's the sort of thing that when you see a, a real shift in the individual characteristics of what consumers are doing, it causes you to rethink, is your tool working properly or do you need to over-index somewhere? So if you start to see that, say, utilization is starting to skyrocket um, as, a, as, a, you know, as a contributor to your credit scores, your credit score might not actually be looking at it enough and you may need to add binary strategies that pick up on that that twist in utilization 
so that you don't get bit by it later by finding out, oh yeah, five years from now we're going to recalibrate our scores and we're going to re we're going to more heavily weight utilization because we found out in the last crisis that that was the thing that caused the problem. You can't wait. You've got to be looking at all of those components of the inputs. You can't wait to find out five years from now that your score actually deteriorated and that was the reason why. So looking at the individual components of the scores is a really important driver as to knowing whether or not you can continue to rely on it. Great example. Thanks. Mike, I'm uh, a little dizzy, honest, honestly, thinking about all the the things that you've got your eye on from a, a marketplace and consumer standpoint. But uh, in addition to that, one of the other things that you spend a lot of time thinking about are innovations that are out there in the market and uh, be they you know technological or, or with data. And I think our listeners would appreciate your perspective on um, what are some of the things that you're seeing that you think hold a lot of promise and, and this is pretty open-ended. So uh, wherever, wherever you want to take that. So I love the question and this may date me a bit for some of the listeners, but I remember programming on an Atari 400 computer uh, way back in the day and graduated to an Apple II plus and an Apple IIc and an Apple IIe. And, you know, and now where we are today, I think if I was to go back and look at those computers, there's more computing power uh, in all of the computers that I worked on until I got to college, probably multiplied by a thousand, won't replicate what's on my iPhone that's mm-hmm. sitting next to me right now. And so where we are is computing power, the ability to have uh, just streams and streams of data coming in from an almost countless infinite number of sources to let the machines find the anomalies instead of the humans needing to search for them. I think that's the biggest, most uh, impressive capability we have today that over the course of the last 10 years, I've seen really revolutionize what we're doing in the world of data strategy, in the world of, say, consumer lending strategies, primarily through things like credit scores and credit strategies and algorithmic decisioning. Um, it's just an amazing capability to have the machines look for the anomalies. Whereas when I first started, I remember everything I worked on, I would go in, I would use SQL, I'd use SAS, I'd pull it into some data set and I would start looking for my own anomalies, looking for where my thought those tipping points were, where I'd found alpha and I'd be able to build my my new credit strategy from. Now I don't need to do that at all. There's you know embedded capabilities inside even things like Microsoft Suite and Power BI that I can just throw the data at it and it comes back and says, hey, you may be interested in looking at this pie charter or this line graph or, or this, this, this assembly of data. And I found this anomaly for you. Is this important to you? And if it's important to you, you can keep it. If it's not important to you, you can throw it away. I may have never, ever thought to look at the data problem that way, but the machine did. And uh, that's, I think, the the biggest, most impressive thing we have at our fingertips now is the intersection of the massive amounts of computer power with the ability to take uh, standard algorithmic uh, approaches that we would have done over many years through, through coding and have it all just baked into software packages where it's telling us, here is the fraud, here is the credit hole, here is the strategy you should be employing. Uh, here is the here is the the, the customer service uh, representative who's just underperforming compared to the rest of his peers in this one area that you may not have looked at. You know he tends to spend more time when someone calls in for a customer service call and changing an address than anybody else. 
this may be a place where you could train an individual and you could get back, you know, hours in his day over the course of a week. Those are things that we would typically have to search and hunt and peck for. And now the machines are just telling us where those things are. So as much as everyone's you know, yelling and screwing up machine learning and AI, those are tools. But I think the real, the real tipping point is the computing power and the, the, the packaging of all of these algorithmic tools into, into tools that you can really train a junior analyst to employ. And it allows for a lot more discovery to occur. And that discovery then gets on a desk for someone like me, where I can look at it and say, wow, that's impressive. Let's act on that. You can get to acting a lot faster with a lot less, you know, searching through the pile of leaves looking for the, you know, the single needle in a haystack. No, that's great. It, it, as you conversely, as you think about that and think about the progress we're making there, are there any uh, kind of you know, either red flags or, or golden calves, I guess, in some way that that we need to be watching for or thinking about? Well, I, th I think the obvious one, and my friends in compliance would probably stop me if I didn't say this was the most important <laughs> one, is is really looking at, for, at the unintended consequences of your analysis, looking at the bias that can get created by the the disparate impact that you never intended, but that can come out of say the machine saying it's a good idea to do X, but that a human looks at it and says, yeah, but you're not considering the fact that there's a regulation against it, or this creates a UDAP experience or, you know, some type of uh, really deleterious influence on a customer where you wouldn't want that to be the customer experience, even though the machine might say it's the most profitable outcome or the most profitable strategy. Uh, we're still a light years away from the machines being able to get past the wisdom of experience and the knowledge of what really a customer is looking for. Great. Thank you. So, so Mike, if, if we could, let's change directions again, just a little bit. Um, you'd mentioned uh, junior analysts in your, your last answer, and it's been a while since all of us have been uh, junior or new entrants into the space. But if, you know, looking back on your experience in managing and developing people, knowing what you know, if uh, somebody who's new to the space, let's say Gen Z participant, what recommend, recommendations would you give them about how to stay abreast of developments, new trends, or uh, competitive pressures in the financial services space? So as people are, say, coming up through the organization, I think the most important thing is to listen to what are the challenges that are being presented to the, the organization as a whole. Uh, and if this guy named Chip is listening, he'll know who he is. Mm -hmm. I think it's the best example in my history was there was an individual who was working around the corner for me in this office many years ago. And they were working on a business problem for somewhere around a year. And I kept hearing about this business problem that was unsolvable, unsolvable, unsolvable. And I walked down the hallway one day and uh, this guy named Chip was working for me. And I said, Chip, I want to tell you about this business problem. What do you think you could do with that? And he literally came back four hours later with it solved because he had a very different approach to the problem, knew how to solve it, knew where the data was. And, um, you know, his ability to look at it from a completely different perspective because he wasn't chained down by decades of routine 
uh, allowed him to have a very different approach and was successful literally by lunch. Uh, and that's a real example. And congratulations to Chip. He's a great guy. Uh, he'll, know, he'll know who he is if he, if he hears this. But I think what it comes down to is as you as you are, say, coming up in the ranks of an organization, you will typically hear about problems that exist. And it's okay to walk up to somebody at the last five minutes of a meeting or the two, three minutes of the next meeting and say, hey, can you explain this to me in a little more depth? Because I've got some ideas about how we might be able to solve that. And sometimes you're going to find out that that asymmetric view of the business problem is exactly what's needed in order to get to a solution that's even better than you would have thought of on your own. So folks that are coming up through the org should not be afraid to step up and ask questions about what it is that needs to get solved, because frequently they come in with newer capabilities, newer technological um, approaches. And sometimes those are the things that exact things that are needed in order to solve a business problem. Good advice. Um, you know, given that though they have new approaches, new techniques, but they do need, uh, I'd say some guidance and some domain and industry expertise. So in this new world of hybrid remote work or return to office, what tips do you have for younger folks on how they should pursue networking and mentoring in a, I'll call it a, a distributed work environment? So the one thing I would say that's a really great tool that I don't think, uh, say, our, our younger generation is using to its full capacity is the networking capabilities we have through, I'll even mention it because we all know what it is, through a tool like LinkedIn where you can find, say, someone who's been a graduate of your university, who's maybe worked with you in the past, and you may have a business problem or a business idea, and to just reach out and say, hey, I know we have this connection. I'm thinking about something, either a problem or an opportunity, a solution or a, an approach. What do you think about this? Would you be willing to spend 15 minutes to talk through this with me? Because I, I'd really like your input. And it could be a you know, a person in the earlier stages of his career and, um, you know, then he reaches out to someone who may be in the later stages of the career who, who's already read the book, who knows where the book ends, who's already, you could write the book and can maybe stop that individual from going down an un, un, uh, unproductive path uh, or potentially then could partner up on, hey, you're looking at this. Uh, let me coach you on where you're going to go. And when you're done, can you come back and tell me what the heck you found? Because I would love to know the answer to that question. And if you're willing to spend time on it, we'd all benefit from the answer. So again, networking is, is a great opportunity for both, both parties. Um, mentoring, I think, is you know a, a very formal approach to that. And every time I have an opportunity to mentor, I take it. And the, the number one reason is I tell the mentee immediately that I will probably benefit from this as much as they will because it allows me to reflect on the answers I'm providing and many times go back and challenge uh, what's the best approach to something that's being asked, not necessarily what's the most available or efficient or you know most on the top of you know tip of my tongue. This is what I'd say, because that's normally what happens eight to five, Monday through Friday, as you go as fast as you can, get as many things done as you can. But when you slow down and you mentor and you network and you deal with people that are say a little bit outside your normal spectrum, it challenges you to think about the question that's in front of you 
And a lot of times you come up with a better answer than if you would just, you know, not stop that same way. So I highly encourage the the younger generation to sometimes stop uh, us, uh, you know, in the later generations to, to ask questions and to seek that type of mentoring and network relationship because both parties benefit. That's so true. We're about ready to, to conclude this. Josh is going to wrap it up. But there is something that I've been thinking about. I want to ask you, but I've been wondering if we are going to see a pickup in industry consolidation in 2024. I would have thought there would have been more now uh, by the end of this year, but I know there's some regulatory concerns and some other things going on. But I'm curious to know what your perspective is on that and whether you want to talk about it on the podcast. I can take that one. I think there's an interesting problem that the regulatory environment has to solve, which is this, you know, very unused phrase of too big to fail. And there are some institutions that have gotten in over their skis in regards to uh, their risk appetite, especially in the commercial real estate environment. They are seeing the uh the effects of, say, being a little too aggressive in areas like commercial real estate in some, you know, major metropolitan areas. There, we were talking earlier, there are buildings that are going into foreclosure. Those things are not paying. The value is not there when it goes to sell because the, the market isn't vibrant. It's sort of a, a almost a death spiral for some of these properties that's leading to the, you know, the appraisers are having a heck of a problem with it because they don't know what to do and how to value a property. And the the values just keep dropping. That's hurting some regional banks. That's hurting folks that are that are in that market. And so the too big to fail element comes in in that, you know, a lot of the larger banks are being restricted from how many of those other banks they can buy outright, that they can buy their charter, that they can assume them lock, stock and barrel. And that, you know, that smaller institution just simply goes away. But what's not being stopped right now is portfolio sales. And we do see, we definitely see portfolios being sold, um, you know, say divisions of banks being sold that are being sold in order to simplify operations for the the selling entity. And, um, And so, because many of these banks are being pressured on really two sides of their balance sheet. One side's the asset side, we just spoke about really the the value that's on the assets and some of these commercial real estate portfolios. And I think we're going to see some consumer portfolios have stress as well. We're already seeing it with some of the uh, more aggressive uh, portfolios. But the other side is uh, the disintermediation that's occurred over the course of the last two years in the in the, really the funding markets for what uh, deposits are going into banks has been an extraordinary change uh, post Silicon Valley. The, the rate at which deposits have increased their cost uh, and the rate at which disintermediation has occurred with flows going out to money market funds is unprecedented. And so re- if you're a bank and you're looking at my cost of funds is going up and my provision on for bad loans is going up at the same time, um, that, net, that net profit margin is just getting crushed in some cases. And so if you're having that happen at the same time, you're having to uh, recognize losses on your bond portfolio because you went long when you were coming in with all of, say, these free deposits in 2021 and 22, 
there are some banks that are having some real difficulty there. So the too big to fail is stopping some of the bigger banks from eating them up, block, stock, and barrel, but it's not stopping the transfer of of portfolios that is a fairly vibrant market at this time. So will we see consolidation? You might see less consolidation in numbers as far as the number of charters going away, but I do think you're going to see simplification in many banks where they may be in a particular industry of lending that they say, I'm going to get out of this because they're not ready for the heat that might be coming. And two areas that I definitely see that starting to occur is uh, the commercial loan portfolio, especially in real estate, and then the consumer portfolios. Yes, we're coming off of all-time lows, but when you start increasing delinquency rates 25, 30, 40, 50%, that's just stress period. It doesn't matter where you're starting from. A 40, 50% increase in anything causes stress. So uh, I think the two together, you're gonna definitely see some consolidation, but you're probably gonna see even more just restructuring on some banks' balance sheets that uh, dollars are going to be moving around to the stronger banks. Interesting. Good insight. Thank you. Mike, this has been great. I, I um, Personally, I'm thinking about a few of your answers. I, I love that analogy on the cross-country running. Um, certainly, you know, helps me think about you know, team performance, roles and teams, and uh, you know, mentoring, and just a number of the things that you touched on from an economic standpoint. So, um, this has been great. I know our listeners will will enjoy your perspective, but uh, just want to thank you again for coming onto the podcast and uh, and your time today. Thank you for having me. This is great as always. I uh, TransUnion has been a great partner for me throughout my career, and uh, when you guys asked me to join, I consider it a great opportunity. Thanks. Good. Thank you. That's it for another great extra credit uh, podcast. We'll see you again next month. <laughs>